Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Focal Audio, the world's reference speaker. For over 30 years, Focal has been designing and manufacturing loudspeakers for the home, speaker drivers for cars, studio monitors for recording studios, and premium quality headphones. Visit Focal.com for more information. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joe Wanasek, and Al Levy. Hey everyone, I'm back. I've been gone for a little bit, that's okay. Welcome back, Joey. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) We were having so much fun without you, you had to just come back and ruin it. I know, I know. I'm kidding, but I don't know. (laughs) It is interesting having you back, though. Welcome back. We did four episodes without you. Well, I appreciate you guys carrying the torch while I'm gone, and for those of you listening, if you're not well aware, this is the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, and we are talking to someone who is legendary in the music scene and uh we're very grateful to have him on the show very thankful for his time his name is bob marlette welcome to the show bob how you doing thank you very much and by the way just so we're clear legendary just really means old really (laughs) it just means you've been doing it long enough that they got to put a new term on oh yeah He's legendary. (laughs) I'm going to read some of these credits off for people who don't know, and then we can argue about the legendary part. (laughs) Rob Halford, John Five, David Lee Roth, Black Sabbath, Quiet Riot, Rob Zombie, Atreyu, Saliva, Shinedown, Seether, and more. I could just keep on listing them, but those of you listening get the idea. Bob's worked on a lot of awesome shit. So once again, thank you for being here. My pleasure. My pleasure, gentlemen. You know, it, it's it's funny because it's like when I hear the, you know, when I hear the list, it's like, you know, somebody will come up to me and it's like, oh, man, you did that record in 1982. I love what, you know, it's like, hell, I can't even remember yesterday. It's like, <laughs> you want me to remember, like, serious details from a record I did in, like, 79 or 80. It's like, it's pretty funny. Do you ever hear stuff that you worked on? And it sounds familiar, but you can't quite place it. And then you realize that. Oh yeah. You realize you worked on it. You produced it. Oh yeah. Th- that actually that happened in the uh, movie theater. We're watching the um, Talladega Nights, and we're watching this movie. I watched that and, this weekend. That's crazy. Okay. <laughs> I, I went to the because my wife and, and son and the three of us were in the theater and watching that, and it gets to the big you know finale race scene and. You know, and it's just, you know, rocking and all. And and my son, like, nudges me and goes, Dad, listen. And I go, huh? And, and he goes, Dad, listen to the song. And I went, oh, shit, I did that. <laughs> it's like, you know, and it's like, I love moments like that because it's like, wow. I, I You know, it's cool because more times than not, you know, as, as you guys know, when we, you know, when we have objective listening we're we're listening with our little you know analyzing brain hat as opposed to wow that just makes me feel good and you know that's one of the things that's tough to maintain when we do this for a living is the listening for pleasure versus listening for oh yeah i i hear the wheels turning on that they use this compressor they use that eq or you know so it's it's nice to have that sort of you know, listening just a uh, purely fun and objective. How often do you actually listen just for fun? Almost never. 
<laughs> I, I know that after after that whole beautiful thing it's like eh, not really <laughs> it's like I, it's hard to do it is it, it's hard to do because part of it is like listening to things where you're not using it as a reference point because most of what we listen to we're listening with a reference point. We're, you know, we're listening, we're A being our track or our mix or whatever against another song. And we're, we're always listening like that. And it's like, there's one of the few bands, you know, that, that I actually listen to for pure pleasure is a Scottish band called The Blue Nile. And I just love the hell out of this band it's just and they're they're it's it's a band that that their first record i think they made in 1981 or 82 but it's this beautiful you just hear the scottish moors and it's so beautiful and it's like love that record because i don't you know there's not really a lot about it that you listen and you go oh they did this or did that because it sort of predates a lot of things and i i love that record Sorry, I I uh, go on and on now and again. So you just slap me if I uh, lose focus. So yeah, thank you. <laughs> I feel that way about movies too, though. Like uh, when you're watching a movie, you shouldn't realize that you're watching a movie. You should just be in it. And, you know, when you're listening to music, hopefully you can try to not listen to the production and just listen to the music sure. but it's hard to do yeah it's the idea to transcend all the other stuff and that and it's funny because that's actually my you know my real relaxation at this point in my life is actually film and and tv because that's the thing that it allows me to sort of transport my brain out of my universe into another one i think that's that's what i love and 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 this last year i uh was actually trying my hand at uh scoring i scored the new uh rob zombie film and um had a lot of fun doing that too. Oh, I'm looking forward to watching that. Yeah. Same here. It, it, you know, but as as always, though, it's the truth is, is it doesn't matter what you do, the grass is not greener. <laughs> it's like <laughs> that's a good point. That's something yeah. that I think we spend a good amount of time trying to to express. At least I do. It's like once you get into the big leagues, things only get harder, and the stakes are higher, and things are. Yeah more complex and which is fine it's just you're right because that's i mean as we were talking about earlier how it doesn't matter what you do and how many years of experience or success you have doing this there's always somebody that you know is going do you think the snare should be a little brighter you yeah know, it's like <laughs> there's it's just there's just that's the nature of it and it doesn't matter and i really sort of saw that because i had this sort of you know i guess esoteric view of film and music and film that i was gonna sort of transcend earthly handcuffs the barriers into you know this wonderful abstract film but then you realize it's exactly the same deal you're you know you're having to you know fit this into that make it work so an audience relates to it you know so it's all this essentially it's all the same parameters apply so you know while we're on the topic of film scoring though i know that lots of our listeners maybe they don't get into actually making film scores but a lot of them are very 
attracted to film scoring, to composers, and to that whole world. It's the kind of thing that a lot of people say they want to do one day. What are some of the challenges? There's got to be some unique challenges to that. What are some of the things that someone who maybe has only been producing bands wouldn't expect is challenging about scoring a film? Well, first of all, I think I went into it, because remember, I started out actually as a keyboard player. That was my first... I know a lot of people, you know, think I was like a guitar player or bass player because I play so much guitar and bass on, on records, but I was technically, I was a keyboard player. You know, that's what I came up as. So I went into it with this really sort of glassy-eyed, altruistic, sort of like, oh my God, this is so great. I get to look at film and then find the emotional relationship and then translate that into a, a you know, musical color. And, and I had all these wonderful ideas of what it was going to be. And then the, the reality set in is like, you know, a contemporary scoring for film, for the most part, is a director and a music supervisor taking cues from other films and putting them in a temp and sort of saying, yeah, that's what we want, and then sending you that chunk of music with already pre-designed emotional content and bumps and, you know, so it it was a lot more sort of physical labor of saying, I got to make this bump land exactly at frame number you know, whatever, and and a lot of things like that. So I, I was surprised to a certain extent. I was hoping for a lot more sort of esoteric, beautiful experiences, and I got a lot more technical, like, oh, yeah, we need to make this happen. I heard when uh, Trent Reznor was scoring The Social Network, he was making tracks that weren't necessarily, like, timed to the video. He was just kind of exploring sound. And once he reached a certain point, the director started cutting scenes directly to some of the audio stuff that he was doing. So the audio was actually starting to lead the movie a little bit. I don't know if that's something you've you've experienced. Actually, that had happened to me years ago when I had written a song for a film uh, about last night, the original one with uh, Rob Lowe and Demi Moore and... And I had written a song in that, and Ed Zwick was the director on that. And that was in a case where I had written this song, and then he was like, oh, you know, the film, we played that track outside in the rain when we were filming it to get the emotion. And then he, you know, he cut it to that same kind of deal. Again, though, I think it really is more about as always, a creative flow. In the case of trance work, I could see how they they would do that because I think the director in that could be influenced by a, a track and a mood that sort of create. In this instance, this was more of, uh, I don't know if you've seen any of Rob Zombie's films, but from my understanding, you know, he really does... That guy, you know, after having done a record with him, that guy's really clever. He knows what he wants. He knows how he wants it to be. And it's pretty specific. And I, as you were saying, my dream was to be that, that I could, you know, I could sit down and create this beautiful, 
Shawshank-esque, beautiful textural layer of things and then let it, you know, sort of develop and morph. But in this instance, you know, it was a lot more specific about fitting into exactly what what Rob had uh, uh, wanted. But again, though, ultimately my dream is to to do a film that's a little bit more like what you were describing with Trent. So. Do you think it's affected by the fact that Rob's a musician, too? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's, you know, that's very much so because, again, I really respect him because I, he he's a guy who sees the big picture. And it's, you know, there was, it was pretty interesting making that record with him because, you know, it was... There was such a, for me, it was really unexpected because I went into it thinking how it was going to be this jug, 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 you know, this kind of <laughs> heavy sort of thing. And then, you know, like day one, you know, because John Five and I had written probably 20 ideas that we demoed here in LA. And, you know, we get in day one and Rob's like, well, don't really like anything I've heard so far. So let's, <laughs> let, you know, and, and to see John's face was brilliant. I mean, he just was like, what? You know, and, and to me, I was like, okay, well, this is interesting. Cause, and then the first thing he played us is this really sort of eclectic Captain Beefheart slash weird Tom Waits track. And he was like, yeah, this is cool. And I'm like, holy shit that is cool let's and then he said let's do something like this and i'm like okay cool game on let's you know and 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 that's why it was so much fun doing that record because it was like there literally wasn't any pre-designed concept you know on anybody it was just literally walking in and him throwing an idea out and then we built a record on that it was so much fun we had a blast so is that normal um, when you make records for the artists to come in with that much of a vision that's actually a good vision? No. <laughs> that's incredibly rare. And it's wonderful from my standpoint because then that is a, a record that's driven by an artist. And there's nothing better than a record that is truly driven by a strong artist who you know has a vision and has an ability to to see a big picture of what they want. Sadly, it usually isn't like that. Sadly, it's you know more of a case of when the band walks in and it's like somebody says, you know, man, I love what you did on this record, man. Can you make it sound just like that? You know, <laughs> and that's when it gets kind of sad sometimes because then it's just like, dude, it's like. That's why I fight for each record to try to have as much of its own identity. That's one of the reasons why when you, you know, when you sort of really see my body of work, you'll see it'll go from Leonard Skinner to Rob Zombie, from Alice Cooper to Cheryl Crow, Tracy Chapman to Black Sabbath. It's like that's what I love most about doing what I do is that I really like to every time out change it up as as much as I can the the problem is is when you know when you have a certain measure of success there's people that say okay well let's get Bob to do this because he did the last three bands that were huge doing this thing and then you sort of and they there's an expectation of you 
delivering that same thing. So how do you reinvent yourself in that situation? Because I mean, I've always been a very branding focused producer. So like an artist will come in and I'm like, all right, guys, what can we do that's different, but that's in line and et cetera. I'd really focused a lot of my energies on making bands interesting and having a unique selling proposition. So how do you go in when a label comes to you or an A&R guy and says, okay, I love the last three records you've done. I want you to make one just like it. And you're sitting there like, well, this band isn't that, but you know, I've got to deliver. How do you, how have you always handled that? Right. Well, I, number one, I th- the good news is, is I sort of, like I said, I started as a keyboard player, but I was also a songwriter from day one. So if you look and you'll see how many songs I've written over the years. And the one thing that I have learned about years of doing this is that an A&R guy doesn't necessarily want it to truly be in the box. He just wants it to be fucking great you know yeah so so to him he just wants success and he wants great you know and if it can be at least somewhat original they're just they're happy with that so long as it's good and it fits fundamentally the genre that the band is and and makes it work so i think there's more wiggle room than we think doing what we do and I'm a guy that likes to wiggle, you know? <laughs> it's like, I, you know, I really enjoy challenging. Because you have to understand, my job is twofold, or actually threefold, essentially. Because my job, essentially, is to be an advocate for the audience. You know, my job is to get the audience to understand what it is that's going on helping the band articulate to the audience what it is they want to do. But the other ingredient in my career is that I got to love doing it. I got to have fun or I'm just going to go sit and watch TV. I'd rather I'd rather sit and watch TV than do something that's boring and stupid and and not interesting. So that's why it, you know, I sort of, I make sure I challenge myself first and then I challenge the band and then I make sure that between myself and the band, we are relating to the audience in a way that they can assimilate the information in the right way that, that connects. You know, like people ask me, well, well, how is it that you go, you know, you could go from Laura Branigan, Rick Springfield, Tracy Chapman, Cheryl Crow to Rob Zombie, Marilyn Manson, you know, um, Shine Down and, you know, all those kinds of bands. You know, and it's very simple. That It's exactly the same. It's all the same. It's music. It's just figuring out the language that you need to speak so your audience relates to it. And so if I'm, you know, working with Tracy Chapman, it's making sure that that visceral connection is there, that the audience can go, oh, my God, listen to, you know, I got a fast car. You know, they go, oh. And if it's Black Sabbath, it's, you know, that it, it just feels, you know, mega and huge and just crushing. So it, it, it's just figuring out what it is. What is it? And then connect it to the audience. So do you have a technical way to figure out what it is? Or like, do you do, do you have a routine, like prep work that you do? Or does it just come to you like, like a light bulb turns on? I'm pretty lucky. It just kind of, boom, 
<laughs> it's well, like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you know, like I said, I, I'm, whether it's whether you want to call it luck or, or just a discipline of years and years of doing it. Even when I was a kid, I just, you know, I was the guy who always was home practicing. And I just love music so much. I just listened to everything. And I grew up in a very interesting, eclectic household. And and it just, we honored creativity and ideas. And, and it just was so... That was sort of the beginning of the nurturing of everything. It's like, I, you know, my parents were just spectacular about pushing creativity and individual thought. And back in the 60s and 70s in Nebraska, that was a rare, rare thing. So I trust me, I, I you know, I, I am a blessed, blessed man. So, but yes, for the most part, I don't have to, it's not this huge process. It's more like, oh, I know what this ought to be. <laughs> you know, it's like, and boom, there it is. I think the huge, sounds like the huge process was all the years that you spent getting music into your DNA. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. And and the, the cool thing about growing up in the time period that I did was when I was a kid, it was sort of the beginning of FM radio. So when you listen to the radio, the playlist was so eclectic. The playlist could be, you know, Frank Sinatra, Led Zeppelin, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young. It, it could be then go immediately to um, anything. And, that, and so when you listened, you didn't categorize in your head what music was. Nowadays, you know... When you're listening, you listening. You're listening to a you know generally to a specific you know serious channel, or you're uh, making your selections on Spotify or, or Pandora, whatever. You're listening to things that tend to be inside the box that you sort of put yourself in. So, whereas I, I never made there wasn't ever really oh i only listen to this it was quite the opposite it was try to be as wide and as open as possible that's why as a kid i i went from yes to you know coltrane to zz top to uh, miles davis you know i mean it was just it was such an eclectic sort of way of looking at it and 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 so that's why to me, music isn't a, a you know a singularity. It's just this you know sort of wide. It's all music. It's all the same. Do you find that um, I guess with the way that radio has evolved into things like Spotify? I mean, I know that radio still exists, but the evolution of how people consume music has kind of taken it to where it's you get everything on demand. Do you think that that's kind of killed people's versatility a little bit? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Because there was a guy, and I, I always forget his name. There was a guy in the 80s that came in, and he was one of the first guys to figure out, you know what, if we only play this kind of music on this radio station, then we can appeal to this advertising demographic or advertising group that really needs to target this demographic. And that was the beginning of us being in a box because all of a sudden the radio station would only play this kind of music 
or this kind of music, depending on who they were going for, for their advertising dollars, because they needed to clarify to an advertiser, hey, this is who our audience is, and if you want to reach that demographic, here's where it's at. And that really put the box around younger kids because they they started like you, you know how like remember those corn shirts you know the, huh, the yeah. band corn you remember how big a deal that was because it's like oh, you yeah. saw that kid with the corn shirt and it's like he was saying to everybody this is me you know i'm badass i'm cool i'm wearing a corn shirt and but that was just the, essentially the tip of the iceberg because then it's like that guy would only listen to that kind of thing with his friends and when i was a kid you know you loved led zeppelin but you also listened to everything else it's like part of it was the Beatles really did set us on the course for showing us how to do it the right way. Okay, people forget Beatles were a boy band. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to hold your hand. But how quick did they go from that to Sergeant Pepper? You know, it, it's like, so it, like they showed years. us early... Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, one of the other problems, and, and again, I'm, I may be going on here, but this is another thing that is a, a pet peeve, too, is nowadays you make a record, you push the hell out of it, and you work that record for three or four years. Well, Beatles made how many records in between that first one and Sergeant, they beat, you know, and, and that's, the, you know, I always said that was what I felt one of the problems with one of the artists I worked with uh, a while back, Amy Lee from Evanescence. And I said that was one of the problems that they had was there was like probably four years between the first and second record. Well, what happens to that demographic in that four year period? They go from being a 15-year-old girl who is sitting in her bedroom listening to Amy Lee to a college kid. And what happens when you go to college? Everything changes. As opposed to saying you make that record when she's 15, then you make another record that grows a little bit, and it grows and it keeps growing, so you're evolving with the audience. And that's what the Beatles were so brilliant at. You know, their whole career was, what, seven years? Yeah. It's insane. Staggering what they did and the music that they made, and, and it was just like, that is absolutely breathtaking what they did. Yeah, I mean, they were together longer than seven years, but from the time that they broke, I believe all those albums elapsed time seven years, something like that. It's kind of yeah. insane. That really puts it into perspective, you know what I mean? Like, just think about the average album life cycle now and how much weight a band puts into an album and then, you know, several years go by and yeah. you're like, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're working on a new album still? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, part of the problem is, remember an album back in the day was they, I mean, I, I, I saw a real interesting McCartney blurb thing and he was talking about this is that they'd write a song and then they go in in the afternoon 
and George Martin would be, what do you got for us? And it's like, you know, you go, hey, I got this little thing. I go, what do you think? And it's like, great, let's do it. And it was a finished record within two hours. <laughs> that was it. It was done. <laughs> so it's not like today where, you know, it's like the band comes in and six months later, we, you know, we have the record. It's literally th that moment. It was that moment. It's like, let's do it. You know, I think they had the right idea. Absolutely. They, and more of it. I tell you, I, I got one of the most, you know, for me, one of my most amazing uh, moments and experiences with I was producing Alice Cooper at Henson Studios and McCartney was in the room next to us and I was working on something I was in the room and McCartney comes over to say hi to Alice and Alice wasn't there and I was just you know and I just sat with McCartney for about a half hour or so just chatting and it was like Oh, my God. Well, let me rephrase it. The first thing I had to do was remember to breathe. Yeah, the I'm second so I, jealous. The, <laughs> the second that, you know, the second that he walked in the room, I was like, Gah! it's like, you know, I mean, what he meant, not just to me, but but to society and, and life in general, what he had, you know. And I just was like, holy shnikes. And he was the coolest beyond cool great guy funny and just like and and it was just so spectacular but but for me you know it was it, it's was that opportunity to go hey did you really you know it's like all of those things that you you know you thought about and never never got to to know until that moment so and did he actually answer yes he did and he was very very cool and very forthcoming with just about everything. I mean, it was just like very cool. But, you know, l let me just say, though, that probably the best moment of all, though, was a few days later. I was standing right near the office and there was like probably four or five, maybe six people hanging out at the front. of, And one of them was uh, Randy Jackson, uh, my buddy from uh, American Idol and because Randy and I had worked together a lot with uh, Neil Sean back in the back in the day, and and we're all hanging out chatting, and McCartney comes out walking out of Studio A, right, and he looks down the hall and he sees us all standing there. We all just like froze, you know, Randy <laughs> included. We're all like, Gah! you know, we're all like, oh my god, and he turns down the hall and looks and sees me, and he goes, "Hey, Bob, how you doing, buddy?" Good to see you. And then he turned up and walked off. And, and the, all of the other people standing there were, just looked at me and went, Oh, my God. Paul McCartney knows who you are. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> that was seriously, what a moment for me. That was just like, because it was just like, oh, my God. It doesn't get any cooler than that. <laughs> yeah, that that's amazing. Yeah. Like, I'm seriously jealous. So, it, you know, there's there's been a couple of those moments like one one was when I was producing uh, Tony Iommi from Black Sabbath and we had Brian May guesting on guitar and and I'm sitting at the console and, you know, Tony Iommi's on one side and Brian May's on the other side. And I'm like, geez, don't these guys know I'm just this kid from Nebraska? You know, <laughs> it's like. So yeah, I've had a couple of couple of cool moments over the years. Where do you go from there? Well, I, the, the the sad thing is, and you guys know this as well as anybody who is self-employed, 
the truth is, is the second a moment happens, like whenever you have a, you know, number one record or whatever, you know, a huge hit, the second, you know, you have about 10 seconds to enjoy that moment. <laughs> and then it's all, okay, what am I going to do next? You know, how am I going to, you know, what's my next thing? What, you know, how am I going to beat this? You know, and I and I think that sort of sums up my view anyway of like I'm competitive, but I'm competitive primarily with myself. I try not to be, you know, competitive in that ugly kind of way, but just I, I love to push myself to always what's the next thing, what's the coolest, you know. And again, it's I just turned sixty and this Red Sun Rising record, we had back to back number one songs. And the truth is, is this, you know, this last one was pretty special for me to have number one records at 60 years old. For me, it's like, that's pretty cool. You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, because it, it's like to be, to stay intense and relative and current at 60 to me was that that's, you know, that felt good. That that was one that I, I actually spent a minute and soaked it in as opposed to just you know next thing next thing so that was cool so how do you keep on the cutting edge since technology is always changing markets are always changing i mean what's cool three months from now is going to be completely different than what's cool now and every single demographic and niche market has its own you know life cycle and changes and it's so hard to keep up with everything going on neither less a single genre what's your trick well number one i mean i do try to stay from a technical side of it I do try to stay as contemporary as possible because I try to make sure and this is not a dig in any way to some of the you know engineers from the other time periods and stuff they they sort of brag about their time period and and their technology of that moment but haven't evolved and my thing was you know I've been making records in let's see, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, 2000, five decades, I've been making records, and in those time periods, they've all had sort of evolutionary growths and spurts that you know. And what I've tried to do is make sure that I always was on the front edge of the new technology, and. So I never felt like I got caught with my pants down. I was like, oh, I don't know that technology, you know. And I've always tried to be first in line to try new stuff, you know. But granted, there's a point where you realize, okay, I need to understand what piece of gear is pivotal in a transitional change, in an evolutionary, evolutionary bump. What is a pivotal piece of gear versus the minutia? You can't get stuck spending a whole bunch of time on things that aren't part of the evolutionary jump. So it's making sure that you're smart enough to see the difference between, oh yeah, that's just another program, but it probably is not going to be around that long, versus like, wow, that's something that will be used every day, and that's a, a key piece of gear that it really has an effect on things. So it's important to stay on top of of what you determine as to be like pivotal gear or pivotal software, which, you know, I agree with. I think now, especially more than ever, we're, th we're getting thrown so many things. 
like yeah. just 15 minutes on Facebook and you'll see 10 ads for 10 different software things. Yeah. So it's like, what do you pay attention but to? That's exactly it. It's, it's realizing now what's going to change my life. What's going to be something that's like, wow, I want that piece of gear. That's something that really, you know, is going to be, but, but don't forget. I mean, part of the deal is, is once you have jumped, you know, made the leap you also realize the similarities in a lot of things. So when you look at something, you go, oh, okay, I understand the fundamentals of this, even though, you know, some of it's just literally its protocol or how, how you know, what is it about this piece that, oh, okay. But there's so many pieces of gear in terms of like, you know, even software. If you run Logic, if you run Nuendo, Pro Tools, whatever, they all have such similarities. Like Pro Tools are, is, is my main sort of, you know, system that, that I run. But I also have an entire second system here that I, where I do sound design and all, of, all the soft sense and a, a different... Because I'm a Mac guy, but I have a PC system that's running New Window that has all of these other pieces of gear. And we run, you know, essentially it's having... A system that is completely fully loaded with everything you've ever dreamed about, plus all of the gear in the studio. You know that the uh, the essential outboard gear stuff too. But and as far as music goes, recognizing who's the one that's actually this. It's almost the same. Recognizing the band that's making an actual leap, because there's generally the way it works is. One band's the actual leaping band, and then there's a whole bunch of other bands that are being influenced by the band that's making the leap. And so it's understanding the same principle, the same concept of saying, okay, well, who is it that's really being fresh and doing new stuff? And then who are the guys that are listening to the guys that are making the new step, you know? And that, it helps a lot because there just aren't enough hours in the day to listen to everything that you should or want to listen to. You just don't have enough hours in the day. So you have to be careful. Definitely. You know, you have to be careful that you're listening to the right things and that you're not getting caught up in listening to something that is just derivative of what the new thing is, you know, so. Speaking of new things, not new anymore, but it was new once. I read that you were a consultant with the original Pro Tools design team. And uh, just wondering what that experience was like and how it feels. Actually, it was before that. It was, <laughs> see, I'm even older than that. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, I was actually, it was actually way earlier than that. It was um, a program called SimptiMate by Hybrid Arts. And that was the actual, they were one of the first ones out of the box with that technology. And I did beta testing on that. I also actually did uh, a lot of the beta testing on flying faders too. Because there was a studio that uh, in Hollywood that I worked at a lot. And uh, flying faders came in and put a system in there and we traded you know, that system for daily updates on you know, software issues and stuff. So, but, you know, I think, I don't know quite how that Pro Tools thing started, but it, it you know, it actually was predated, 
Pro Tools. So so that's a myth out there about the Pro Tools thing. Yeah, that is a myth. But, you know, I would say that all of us, all of us were included in that concept. You know, it wasn't as, you know, it wasn't a direct hands-on thing like I was with the SimptiMate and the Flying Fader stuff. This was more of a, there was just a brain trust of people that were all like, hey, dude, what should we do here? I think part of where that came from was both the SimptiMate, but also I was the first one in the U.S. to really work on the CMI Fairlight. Do you remember a box called the Fairlight? I do. Yeah. And... I was the first one in America because the first people to ever get it in the States was the Village Recorder. And they, you know, they got the, this would probably, but it would have been 1979 or 80, somewhere around there. And they got, you know, they, the owner of the studio, Jordy Hormel, had brought, brought it back for, I think it was created in Australia or wherever, but they had brought it back and they had this giant box and they were all like, shit now what do we do so I, I had worked there a lot and i was really good friends with all the uh house engineers and the uh tech staff there so they called me up because i was a keyboard player it's like well let's get bob over here we'll he'll figure it out and so it was that was more of a case of us just sort of let me say that that to me was really that epiphany moment for me because i played a lot of instruments but I was, you know, I was limited in my mind to the, the degree of accuracy and the precision that I wanted for performance sakes. And that was that first moment where I was like, oh, wait a second. So I can play a bass sample. <laughs> I can play a kick drum sample and I could build drums and and that was a real pivotal, you know, and I remember that like it was yesterday because it was like, it was like, holy shit, this is the new world. This is the new world order because this is, you know, because this sort of, before that, I, I had friends that, um, one of my buddies, Carl Richardson, uh, who had produced with Albie Gluten all the Bee Gees records and, and he was telling me about he invented one of the earliest drum machines and he had figured out if you took a click, that old black metronome with the little light on top, and he wired the output of the light to a solenoid motor and with the electrical pulse and then mounted it on a thing in front of a kick drum. And that was the first, like the BG sound. That was actually huh. it. It was a click huh. with a solenoid motor with that beater head on it hitting the kick drum. That was the early. That's the original drum machine. Wow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but so it's actually a drum machine. Yeah, literally a drum machine. <laughs> wow, I had no <laughs> that's idea. That's so cool. Is it? I mean, that's so. That's the beauty of all of this. Back in the day, especially because, you know. It, we'd just be sitting around a room and, and, and somebody go, God, I wish we could do this. And then there was some brain guy in the corner going, you know, if we did this, we could probably make that work. And they were like, dude, let's do it. And then we'd sit around and figure out how to make it work. And I, I just love that sort of creativity and that and and that's one of the things I think is tough today because 
we all sit around. We, we want to have the next idea, the next big idea, but it's just so tough because there's so many ideas, you know, <laughs> and so many things, and it's difficult, you know. That's a tough one. So, Do you primarily work inside the computer now, or do you... Do you go do do the hybrid thing? I have the break. I have dangerous audio, and I you know I do a breakout, but it's a a modified breakout. It's not a console as much as it is like uh, just a breakout box essentially. And but even that nowadays, like uh, you know, I'm actually thinking about. Uh, I want to figure out how to do both, so I can just go back from being. I want I want to be able to be completely in the box, and then have also the ability to break out but also i still part of what i still love is having all my neves and and you know the apis and and focus rights and things i mean in my 1176 you know you can never go wrong with that and the distressors and stuff and i don't want just the uad's or the you know the the waste plug-in versions i like you know, I like old school combined with new school. I mean, that to me is really the the best of both worlds because it allows you to have all of the the technique. I mean, essentially, the, the probably where I'm going to head in the very near future is to be completely in the box, but creating all the inserts where I can just grab an insert and boom, there it is. So, do you feel that just based on everything you just said about? how creative it was before the computers took over the world of music. Do you find that working with computers limits your creativity or do you feel like it boosts it? And I'm just curious because, you know, we have a whole generation who don't know anything but working on computers. Right. I actually think it boosts, and I'll tell you why, because... The problem a lot of times was I would, in the old days, I would have the idea, but I couldn't facilitate the idea. Nowadays, it's like I'm not particularly limited that much. I have the ability to kind of come up and create whatever I can dream of. I can sort of, my next biggest thing is, and and this is going to be one of the, the truly next biggest quantum leap. I feel limited by the stereo width of a track. That's my next biggest thing. It's like, when are we going to get our jacks to our brains so we can go directly in? I'm sure at some point. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. To me, that's, and I don't know if I'll be able to, to live long enough to see that, but that's the, that's the true dream for me is escaping the bounds of our sort of physical limitation. So it only becomes a cerebral one. So everything is this. So remember, you know, when we were first messing with 5.7.1, you know, mixes. And it's like, I mean, that to me is like, ultimately, it's, it's being able to mix directly to our brain. So sorry, my my sci-fi part is taking over, but uh, but but that I, you know I I think that is probably the future. So you actually you mix for the brain, you know, and you mix with a, a completely new concept. But uh, trust me, the cool thing about it is I'm sitting here talking about it, but there's some dude in a lab who's going, you know, we could do that. <laughs> it's like. 
So that's that's a beautiful thing. I'm sure there is. I I feel like at some point that's where it's headed. I've I've read things about that too. Yeah. I mean, you know, my my thing was, you know, it's like I just wanted to live long enough to be able to cuz they're talking about being able to download our consciousness and our, you know, all things. And I just want to, you know, see if I can live long enough that I can get so I can be able to download myself. I you know, some of that is purely egocentric, but some of it's like wouldn't it be cool to be able to bypass our limitations? I just think that, you know, would be pretty Clone cool. Clone an army of yourself, get shit done. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, that is true. Because, I, you know, as I get older, I, I realize something. I, You know, I really want to engineer a little bit less and, and mix a little bit less and, you know, hand things off. The problem is, though, is like... I know what I want and I know how I want it to be and and it's sometimes it's frustrating to like dude that's good but it's not ah let's try this and, and so yeah that would be the advantage is in, in having that is the ability to clone like that because then I could you know Bob why don't you do this and I was like I'm already on it <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> you edit drums I'll track vocals and you mix dude See, yeah, that's it. It's like all together. Boom. <laughs> there it is. Love that. <laughs> I'm already signed up and in queue, yeah. so I'll, I'll tell you who to call. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Make God. that happen. <laughs> Just imagine what we could get done if that was possible. I know. But yeah, here, then, I'm sitting here thinking it through. Right. But then the next problem is, is do we really need to hear all that extra music? You know, because that, <laughs> that's the next curve, I think, is the, one of the things that we, we didn't talk about that much, but it's kind of important, is back in the day, it was singularity was more important. The individual, you know, was so much more important because we didn't have the same level of saturation. Now, there's literally thousands and hundreds of thousands of bands and artists and, you know, every single day it's like, you know, my daughter sings, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, really? <laughs> it's like, and, and so to me... That was one of the beautiful things about back in the day. You really did have to be good. You really had to be better because it was so much harder to get there. And that was some of the beauty about it was that I love the fact that you actually had to make your dream come true. Today, it's a different world. It's a different world. So how do you deal with the new world and, you know, when the musicians aren't really bringing the thunder and struggling and, you know, today's crop isn't quite as good as the old crop? How do you deal with that as a producer? That is truly one of the most toughest issues and, and problems that we're facing every day is the the dumbing of our, our music, the dumbing down of our music. And that's really what it is. It's like, and it's very frustrating because... Having lived through time periods where it was, it really was about being special. And even the worst guy was still much better than a good guy in today's world. And so the hardest part about today is back in the, I would say, in the 90s and, and you know, late 80s and stuff, when the guy couldn't cut it, we made a phone call. And we got another musician who was badass who could come in and nail it. 
all those records that you hear that you were like, oh my God, I love this record and that record. And then, you know, years later you find out, oh yeah, actually that wasn't their drummer. That was, you know, that was Mike Baird or, you know, whoever. It was like, all, you know, all these other drummers that would show up and, and guitar players and bass players. And, and nowadays, my son, who uh, he actually, my son played drums on the Red Sun Rising record. My son is totally a badass player. And between him and myself, we sort of, you know, we pick up the slack. Sometimes we just simply have to edit and you know my son's actually my main assistant now and he does uh, he does all the pro tools editing but he also programs and plays and everything and and so in this environment i try always i really try to have it be the band themselves i try for it to be as organic pos- as possible because that always just for the most part that leaves you with the best product uh, something that's real and organic but when you know which in these situations rise all the time in this case then we we have to do whatever needs to be done. So you just get it done. Well, that's However one of possible. my yeah. That's that's you know that's what we do. Yeah, that's that's one of my lines that gets used all the time. Is like, I don't care how we get there, just so long as we do. Well, it is what it is. I mean, back in the day, they had session musicians as a regular thing. Nowadays, it seems like the producers are taking on more of that session musician role. Exactly. Interestingly enough. Absolutely. But I feel like that element doesn't seem like it's really changed. Like, there's always been that safety net of somebody available who is that much more badass an instrument than the band members just in case. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, this is not new. I, I was a session player. I, you know, back in the... So you were the guy. Yeah, I was the guy that used to get the call to come in and fix. So, <laughs> you know, and, and and back in the day, it's like the same thing applies today as it did back then. It doesn't matter how we get there just so long as we do. Because at the end of the day, my job is to deliver the record. So at the end of the day, however we get there, we just got to get it done. So, and, and you're right, it really hasn't changed much in, you know, since the, the old days, whether it was the producer or it was the stable of players that he knew or the top dudes. There were lots of guys that just got a lot of work because, you know, they look at, did you ever see the movie Wrecking Crew? Because that was such a great example of this very thing that we're talking about. And that that was in the 60s. I, I recommend that movie highly. Actually, it's interesting because my son's grandfather, uh, my ex-father-in-law, Bones Howe, he's in that film. He produced the uh, Mama's Papa's Fifth Dimension, Elvis, the Turtles, you know. Uh, just a gazillion of huge bands. And the, and one of his bands, the Association, they were talking about that very thing with the Wrecking Crew. He was being interviewed about calling them up and having them come in and do the record. So, yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty interesting. I actually, I'm going to watch that. that that's uh, now my curiosity has peaked. Definitely. Trust me, you're, you, yeah, you're going to want to see it because it, it, it's really interesting how they're, you know, they just talk in the 
you know, that's the way it was, man. You just came in, played the record, didn't think about it, did it, you know. And what's crazy is one of the most prolific session bass player in the 60s was a woman, Carol Kay. People don't realize a bit like from uh, the, these boots, doom, 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 doom. You know, the, these boots came walking. The, yeah. That's her playing bass on that, and and from uh, Hawaii Five O and all this stuff. It, it's so worth seeing the movie. It's very clever, very cool. Wrecking Crew. Yeah. Cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna actually check that out tonight. Yes. So if you had to attribute all the success you've had in your career to three specific things, what would they be, in your opinion? Well, the three bands or three artists? Or just like three things that you do, routines, rituals, habits, attitudes, um, anything. Like, what's the secret sauce? Mindsets. You know, probably number one, I'm, I'm kind of crazy maniacal for energy. It's like, I want to feel that record coming out of those speakers. And that's one of the things that I try to always sort of keep an eye on is... That feeling that it just, I'm being punched in the face emotionally, whether it's a, you know, an acoustic soul alternative artsy fartsy record or the most crushing heavy record. I just want to emotionally feel like I'm getting punched in the nutsack, you know? And, and it's, because <laughs> that's really what it, you know, whether you're listening to James Taylor or, you know, or Megadeth. It doesn't matter. It's about feeling the energy come, you know, come across. That and I am absolutely maniacal about songs. And every artist that you've ever, you'll ever talk to, you know, that I've worked with over the years is like, it, it, I'll tell you this, it, and this is, I, I say it to every single band, but it's the same line and it works every single time because it helps them understand it. I'll start by saying, what's the cure for a shitty snare drum sound? Great song. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. A hit song. Because who the fuck cares what the snare drum sounds like <laughs> if the song's a hit? Thank you for saying that. Because every month I feel like I say that about mixing. When I mix a lot of songs, Bob. I'm like the 500 club a month. No, I know. Oh, sorry, you, you, a year. You, yeah, you you the man. I, I know that, yeah. That's and great. Like, it, it's just all about, it doesn't fucking matter because you hit play and either your mom likes it or she doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, that's let's exactly be honest. exactly right. It's, it's so true. And, that, and that's, the, that's the preach is that, hey, guys, you know what? The, the, yeah, yes, we all care what the snare sounds like, but at the end of the day, the snare is not what gives it longevity. And the snare isn't, you know, it's like the <laughs> snare, you know, it's just a thing in there. It's all about the song and then understanding, making sure that the singer sings the song with the passion and the energy and the, you know, is, is connected emotionally to it. And if you get those two things right, you'd be surprised how easy this business is. You know, it really is. If you dial those two things in, 
you'd be surprised how, how everything lines up for you. So I hope everybody listening to this goes back and rewinds and listens to you say that like 15 times and ingrains <laughs> it into their skulls because that Get is some tattooed. of the best advice I think I've ever heard. Well, you know, it like I said, there there are a few advantages to doing this for 40 plus years. And, and that's one of them is realizing really where to put your priorities. And, and, and it's like, if you really make sure the song is in place, the artist is connected and singing right, and basic, basic, you know, fundamental engineering skills, you know, it's like, and the beautiful thing is, is like nowadays, the playing field has leveled out so much because we all have essentially access to pretty much the same thing. You know, so that's the good news. Back in the day, we were limited because not everybody got to go into the studio and they didn't get to go into Henson or Record Plant or wherever. You know, it's like they didn't get to go into those rooms. But nowadays, dude, I move my, you know, like my setup is in my house. Everything you've ever dreamed about in your life is sitting right here in my house. So it, it's like the, the playing field is pretty much leveled for most people because even a, you know, just a good Pro Tools rig with a bunch of plugins, that gets you to the starting gate. Then it's about the song and the singer. You know, I'll tell you something I noticed when I came out to your place, Bob, at NAMM and we hung out, I was actually shocked to walk into your kitchen when I had to use the bathroom and there was the drum set all mic'd up and I walked back into the studio and he was playing and it sounded fucking awesome. So there you go. You can mic drums in your kitchen if you know what the hell you're doing. Well, you know, that, that was a beautiful, happy accident. <laughs> it's like, because <laughs> I, I was doing this kind of quirky small alternative record and and it's like I just wanted to do kind of a cool small drum kit overdub thing and and I was like oh you know what let's go in the dining room let's go into the dining room put some mics up see what happens and I heard it back and I went my dining room sounds fucking amazing. You know, I love it. It does. You know, and, and so, okay, great. So then, as always, then I, I had tie lines put in and I had, you know, it's like I had, you know, <laughs> cameras and all this shit put in because I, whatever I do, I usually take too far anyway. But but anyway, the, the point is, is that now, because I never set out at this studio, my, my environment, to have a drum room. Because I always still like going to Henson and, and wherever to, to track drums. But then I realized that my drum room sounds great. So, okay, I'm never leaving the gates anymore. So now, you know, it's like I don't even open the gates. I just stay at home. So it's all good. Speaking of drum rooms, what type of uh, live rooms do you prefer? Or does it differ from record to record? I mean, I would say this. I don't like super small rooms. And I don't like super big rooms. I always like, I tend to always like a room that's kind of in the middle. But like, for instance, I realized something. It's really more about the angles and just the the energy of the room. Because like mm -hmm. my dining room, it you know, we have, you know, nice hardwood, hardwood floors. We have a vaulted ceiling and we have this giant brick fireplace in the dining room and all this brick and stuff. So it's these weird angles combined with the hardwood and the stone creates this great, because it doesn't, there's not a lot of 
you know, weird, boingy, reflective. It's all kind of, you know, and, and it just, you know, that, and that's kind of in general what I like in a room. I, I don't like it too small, but I really don't like super big rooms, uh, you know, because it just, to me, it's just all it is is energy kind of going out and dissipating and not sort of collecting the energy and getting it on the mic. So the big, big ass rooms become totally uncontrollable yeah in my opinion yeah it's just it's it's kind of a it's one of those things that somebody go look how big my room is and i'm like eh, i'm just, that's just more work because i'm gonna have to close it down to not have all that fucking you know extra noise floating around i actually had my first drum room well my first drum room that i owned was in my dining room of my house and it had a fireplace in it and it had some pretty open doorways. Like the doorways were probably around, I would say five feet wide and, and nine feet tall. So it actually was perfect for recording drums, oddly enough. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the, the same concept as here is that it's weird because it has more to do with kind of an openness and a non square or you know not sort of non-reflective walls and stuff so it's really more about that it's the angles and the the quirkiness that make it sound so cool like one of the coolest drum rooms ever is um townhouse studio two which is now an apartment building in london but used to be one of the coolest rooms that's where they did you know everything from zeppelin and stones and uh um that's where they remember uh in the air tonight the phil collins that's where they recorded that right and it was just lot. It was a hardwood floor, weird angles, really high ceilings, and lots of brick. And it's surprising how that equation equals great drum sounds. So I, I love that. I think that's cool. Question, just out of curiosity, do you ever still record to tape? Um, <laughs> funny you should mention that. As a general rule. I would rather have all of my teeth pulled than <laughs> go than, than go to tape. I, I you know it's like, but I just did the new Airborne record in Australia, and that was one of the things the guys were like, "Dude, we want to go to tape. We want to you know old school, just make it badass." And I'm like, "Really?" And I got talked into it, and and it sounded great. And it it's more to do with the hassle. Than it is. I, the quality is great. It sounds great. I mean, it, it definitely has its its own thing. But it was more of a. At the end of the day, it was something that really worked good for them because it was just an organic thing that was like, yeah, this is badass. And plus, I had Mike Frazier come in and uh, engineer it for me, and uh, that guy's badass. And it it just you know it was the perfect storm of all things. Uh, tape and and him and so it all worked nice but as a general rule no i would definitely not i don't like tape but part of it is philosophically tape adds things tape moves things around and it's and every time it passes by the heads it's losing stuff and my theory is that my job as an engineer is to be able to engineer into, you know, the the sounds, all like tape, hard drive, whatever. It's just the storage medium. 
that's simply the place for me to store what it is that I've engineered. So that's why I tend to prefer Pro Tools because now it sounds so good, it just comes back exactly what I put in and that's what I really want. I don't want it to be altered because otherwise I would change the sound to be that, so. So you're sick of a storage medium that's degradable. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Perishable. <laughs> yeah, well, well played, young man, well played, yes. That's exactly right. I just think it's really, really interesting because, you know, we've talked to lots of people at this point on this podcast. And uh, it's just I just find it remarkable how in how much you've adapted to the to the world. And I really think uh, to the new world of audio technology. And I really think that that's part of a big reason for why you've stayed so relevant continue to evolve we've talked to some guys who haven't necessarily felt the same way about it and a lot of their a lot of their hits were maybe in other decades and didn't continue on and stuff but i think there's something there's something to be said for embracing the future yeah you can't you can't fight it it's coming i was gonna say for me the main thing is i was never afraid of it I was never afraid of anything and because I felt that that was one of my responsibilities as a producer and, you know, someone who made music is I wanted to be the opposite of afraid. I wanted to embrace, you know, the unknown. And, and that's where the fun is at. But understand something. The reason why I can be like that is because I'm able to back it up. You know, with years of songwriting and playing and engineering. And so there really isn't a lot that I can't do. So that really helps in the attitude of being bold and, and, and fresh is that I know it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. I know I'm always going to pull it out. So it doesn't matter what we do. I'll be okay. It's going to be The medium's okay. just a medium. Yeah. It's, you know, they're all just, it's just, it's realizing that. It's just buttons to move and push and fade until I get what I want, until I get it to sound the way I want it to sound. I really love the practical approach or the practical way of thinking about this industry or this thing that we do because so many people get caught up in like having the coolest mic or the coolest compressor, but who gives a shit? Yeah. The person who owns it. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? You're you're absolutely on the money about both those things. Because the guy that gives you the biggest speech about a particular box is the guy who owns that box. And he's telling you about his box that is the secret to his shit. Well, the truth is, there isn't any secret to what I do. I just wake up in the morning and I go out and I make music. There's no... There's no magic bullet to any of this. It's just make music, have fun, love it, be passionate about it. It's all good. I mean, there it is, right? Boom. (laughs) Boom. Shots fired. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, that's one of my terms that I use a lot. Boom. You know, (laughs) because that's just it. What else is there? It's a mic drop. Thanks. Boom. 
<laughs> See you. Thank you. Good night. So, oh, one last question, because we're coming here to the end of our time for this. Is uh, Do you have any final bits of advice for audio engineers or songwriters or film scorers or session players or just anybody trying to make a living in audio and music in 2016 and on actually i do and and i you know i've because i that's a question that i get asked fairly frequently is and it's pretty simple my theory is say yes to everything say yes don't no is really not it shouldn't be in your vocabulary it's say yes and then figure it out it's like people ask me it's like dude man you did that record that was the dumbest record ever yeah but you know what it may have been the dumbest record but it's now it's part of who I am and it's okay and it ain't no big deal I don't get really caught up in trying to be super cool or have everything that I do be so badass that it's like if you say yes to everything that's how you build up a life of music and creative ideas. And those are the things that end up at the end of the day helping you be truly great at this is the fact that you've done it enough times in bad situations and good situations and weird situations. You know, I've always said part of what makes me good at what I'm doing, what I do, the therapist part of who I am is that being the teacher, the therapist, the songwriter, all of those things. If you say yes to everything, that means you're learning, you're evolving, you're working, you're making it happen. Do not sit around your fucking bedroom all day waiting for something to come to you. Go out and make it happen. Yeah, especially as soon as something does come, don't say no. (laughs) Yeah, because I see people that it's like, well, I didn't think that was cool. You know, at this point in my life, I can say no, but that's not how I started. I didn't start out by saying no. I started out by saying yes. And I think that is so important. Don't get caught up in the wrong things. Don't try to fucking be so cool that you're, you know, trying to outcool the next dude. Embrace everybody. Embrace the different ideas, all that stuff. I don't, I don't want to sound like a hippie, but you know, it, I, I do feel the importance of just keeping open. Be open. Be creative. It's like, how many times have you been in a room where some guy is like. Yeah, man, that, you know, that artist is really fucking gay. And, I, you know, it's like, and I'm just like, you know, how about you shut the fuck up? You know, <laughs> shut up. Love it. You, you do something. You do something that's worthwhile. Then you can talk about something, you know. But right now, you got to earn that right to say anything. So, anyway, sorry. I'm, <laughs> I got on my soapbox again. Sorry. Bob. Thank you for coming on. That was absolutely amazing. And I'm hoping we can do it again sometimes. We know you are super busy, but that was quite an enlightening hour. Well, it's my pleasure, gentlemen. And I hope, uh, you know, I hope I've been uh, helpful in some way. Like I said, part of my job at this point in my life is passing as much 
knowledge on as I possibly can to people and do everything I can to make sure that I, I'm able to earn all the amazing things that have come my way. So thank you guys. Thank you so much for coming on, man. All good, my friend. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Focal Audio, the world's reference speaker. For over 30 years, Focal has been designing and manufacturing loudspeakers for the home, speaker drivers for cars, studio monitors for recording studios, and premium quality headphones. Visit Focal.com for more information. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe to Hey!